one hand, I think more people are curious about spiritual things or about being open to other things because it, the world seems darker than it's been in a while. But I think also we've become a culture that doesn't like any kind of discomfort and we're a culture of distraction and quick fixes. So there's a danger in that too, right? And, and it takes consciousness and thought and will to decide that discomfort is worth it for something greater, that there's no quick fix for anything that's really important. That was Monica Berg. Today we're talking about ego versus consciousness and how we can live a more conscious life, how we can raise our consciousness and step away from being more ego-driven. Fascinating conversation. I loved every moment of it. Absolutely, hands down, one of my favorite interviews ever. You'll hear me. I am just amazed by the things we're discussing. We talk about Kabbalah. Monica is the Chief Communications Officer at the Kabbalah Center. She's also an author, a teacher, a mom. Some of the things we touch on are how Monica takes care of herself, how she checks in and uses emotional feedback to help her reroute in her days, that the process is the purpose, that the path we're walking is our lives, that we're always right where we're supposed to be, that it is our birthright to pursue greatness. And when we turn towards our soul consciousness, the path becomes clearer. We talk about the material realm and how in Kabbalah that's known as the 1% realm and how the spiritual or the unseen realm really makes up 99%. I could have personally talked to Monica all day long. To learn more about her, you can go to her site, which is rethinklife.today. I will put that in the show notes. Or you can also check out the Kabbalah Center to look for more courses on some of the concepts she teaches. Stay tuned to hear a whole heap more about ego versus consciousness. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Monica, thank you for coming on here to thrive. This is a treat. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I want to start with a little bit more about you. When I was doing the research on you, you've been married for 22 years. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> and a mom of four, and you're the chief communications officer of the Kabbalah Center. You're also an author and teacher in your own right. Okay, Monica, what does a day in the life of you look like? Because that sounds like a lot. Yes, it's very busy. <laughs> um, it's a juggling act, but I feel like when you love what you do and you're passionate about it, it doesn't feel like work. And the way that I approach my life, it's body, mind, and spirit, and they all are equally important, and they all 
need to function at their best for you to be your best. So I'm very intentional with my time, with my energy. And I'm also very clear that, you know, the most important relationship I'll ever have is the one I have with myself because it's the longest one as well that I'll ever have. If you don't feel good in your body, then everything else is going to suffer. So I give myself a lot of emotional feedback and I check in with myself. If something feels like it's taking too much of me, then I pull back. If something needs more attention, then I give it. I often use the example that imagine, you know, everybody's in a car. So in one seat is um, time you give to yourself. Another one is for your partner. Another one's for your children. Another one's for your projects. Sometimes each one's going to do a rotation to sit in the front. Sometimes things are going to be pushed to the trunk. But it's that approach that I take that allows me to navigate. Okay. I mean, if I add one more thing to this schedule, though, sometimes I fall off balance but then I'm quick to kind of get it back together. I love that analogy of the car. I've never heard it before, but that rotation into the front seat, because I feel like as a working mom myself, so often, yeah, we, it's, it is this juggling act, but, but having everything in priority at once is kind of unrealistic. That's that movement. I like it. It's impossible. And it really creates a flexibility when you approach it that way. And you're able to be honest and live a truthful life. I mean, I think that we're supposed to do many, many things and you make it only about one pursuit, then you will feel at some point shortchanged or you'll feel like you, you know, maybe lost an opportunity. I think if you approach your life with flexibility and curiosity, then you really can do it all. But you can't do it all at the same time. Again, I'm giving energy to all of those areas that I just mentioned, but not equal. Mm, I like that. I was a stay-at-home mom for a period and there was a part of me that was really, my creative side was just, oh, so unhappy. It was in the trunk for too long. So when I hear that, that rotation, it really resonates with me. When you look at your life now, I mean, what, what was Monica like growing up? Did you ever envision a life like what you have now? Was that something you could have foreseen for yourself? I love that question. I think very few know what they want at such a young age or what they want to do or who they want to become. But what was interesting is I, at a very young age, at three or four, five, I have vivid memories of having tea parties with God. I felt like I belonged to something much greater than me. And I felt very safe with that knowledge and very comforted. And it wasn't even that I was raised in a home like that. It was really just me, my my soul, my connection to something far greater. So, you know, then you go through life and we all get distracted and misguided often. And at age 17, I, I mean, I can go into the details and there are many, but I rediscovered that aspect of myself that I felt like I had lost for a while. I went to Beverly Hills High School. I had a very interesting education. I saw a lot of things at a very young age and I felt sad about life. I mean, this just can't be it. It can't just be about pursuit of material things. And then the things that everybody thinks are important didn't seem important to me. So when I found spirituality at that age, I really felt that familiar feeling again that I had had as a child. And from there, I was able to find my life's work and my purpose. So the answer is yes and no. The part that I never took into consideration is the process. You know, even if you have an idea of what you want to do or what excites you or what 
you feel like you can offer to the world. We don't take into account how long it will take or the lessons along the way. And it's really the process is the purpose. So I think that's probably the biggest surprise I've had in arriving to where I'm at today. The process is the purpose. That lands with me so intensely. I mean, that's what we're here to do in life, right? It's all about the process. Right. And when you're so focused on just the destination, I have to get there. I have to be there. I should have arrived already at this time. I was supposed to do all of these things by this age. Then you miss out on all of the beautiful gifts and learnings and the possible transformation and growth for yourself. And that's really what it's all about. And then you might end up at the same destination, but you'll be much stronger, smarter, wiser, happier, or you might be at a different destination, one that's far better. Oh, You also mentioned this period of you feeling distracted and misguided, which I feel like so many of us as humans, I assume we all go through it at some point, but so many of us get stuck there. Can we talk about what those words mean to you, distracted and misguided and what you noticed in yourself and perhaps what you notice in others? Absolutely. I think that Everybody goes through those stages, some to more extremes than others. I think also depends on the environment you're in, your home life, what kind of security you grow up with. But I think we all go through periods of self-doubt and confusion about, you know, what direction should I go? And especially if you're not raised in a spiritual home and you're not tapped into something greater, it can feel like you're alone or lost. And I often am asked, you know, what did your parents teach you or did they teach you this and that? I think that often you also learn what not to do by watching those closest to you. And I saw my parents go from having tremendous wealth and being very successful and relatively happy to losing it all. And then it was just the pursuit of that one dream. And I watched that there was so much that was missed out on. So for a while, I just felt like I had all these questions about why are we here? What really brings joy and fulfillment? What is the ultimate purpose? And there was really nobody around me at that time to answer because everybody was doing their best, but they were kind of struggling. And again, growing up in Beverly Hills, where it's often an environment that the emphasis is on what you have and what you do and who you are versus um, kindness, character, integrity. And I'm not saying that as a judgment. It's just that that is generally it's it's Hollywood. You know, it's more about the illusion. And so I didn't feel like I belonged there. But then we all are susceptible to peer pressure and fitting in. And when you're busy trying to fit in, then you lose kind of who you are. And when you don't have access to who you are, then you don't even pursue the things that you used to love. You don't even, you're chasing somebody else's dream. So I went through all of that. And that I I think from that at age uh, 17, I developed anorexia which lasted five years and miraculously I recovered. But it was in that loneliness and that longing and that loss of self that really pushed me to go find who I was and who I wanted to become. Oh, I'm just that loss of self and chasing someone else's dream when we are distracted, I think. I just look around and what I do in my work and I feel like we're all so prone, like you said, to that peer pressure. And the next thing you know, one of the ways I will put it is people are climbing the wrong ladders. They're they're thinking that happiness is up there and they end up completely off course. Absolutely. And I, I even see it, you know, I, my, I, I have kids many different ages, all four of them. And um, 
you know, there's so much pressure on colleges and SATs and this, that. And I, you know, and I had a very honest conversation. I said, you know, you'll arrive where you need to arrive when it's the right time. But how many people meet that mark and they get into the school they want and, you know, their pressure is tremendous and they find themselves not happy and, you know, they commit suicide. Like it's not this map of like, I have to check that box because everybody else is. And I really want to give that message to people because I think we all fall prey to that, that illusion of, you know, this is what's important when really it's not. Oh, you'll arrive when you're meant to arrive. Oh, we've been speaking for like five minutes and I'm already like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) okay. uh, Kabbalah. This is a topic that I've personally been fascinated with since I converted to Judaism in my late twenties. It's one of those things that has sat in the back of my mind and I'm still really keen to know more and dig my teeth into Kabbalah so much more. For those of you who don't know anything about Kabbalah out there, could you give us a little bit of a high-level overview, Monica? Yes, as people often get confused with, you know, what is it? I've kind of heard about it. And um, in a nutshell, it's basically an ancient wisdom that explains the complexities of the material and the non-material world, along with the physical and spiritual nature of all humanity. So what Kabbalists for thousands of years have taught that every human being is born with a potential for greatness, and Kabbalah is remarkably effective to activate that potential. And basically, you know, we're all destined for greatness in our relationships, in our life, and it's our birthright to re- to pursue this. And basically, it gives all of the information, all of the tools, all of the wisdom of how to achieve that. And it's about leaving this world transformed better than how we come into it. It's all about progression and growth and acting with that soul aspect of ourselves versus the physicality. And the way it's explained is that usually, and it's human nature, we have, we all have desire, which is necessary for being alive, right? If you don't have desire, basically you don't really live, but it's usually desire to receive for the self alone. And through the wisdom of Kabbalah, with all of the teachings, it's to take that desire and then to receive for the sake of sharing. So it's that elevated understanding. And it really elevates all of life experiences. It gives a consciousness. It expands consciousness so that when things happen in life, you're able to not only make sense of them, but embrace them and really see the gift in even the most challenging situations. Oh, This is why it appeals to me. When we're talking about Kabbalah, you are the chief communications officer for the Kabbalah Center. Where are their centers in the States? All over. We have uh, in Florida, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, St. Louis, London, Israel. I mean, all over the world. Not where you live. I know. (laughs) I was talking about this with Monica before we got on. I'm like, I noticed there was no Kabbalah Center in Minneapolis, St. Paul. But you were saying that anyone who's interested in learning more about Kabbalah, there are online courses. Yes, Kabbalah.com. There's all levels um, for beginners to advance. I mean, it's it's such a dense uh, study. You could study a lifetime and then still not have learned all of it. It's it's that much. So. You know, but you would start with Power of Kabbalah 1, and then from there, it, it gives you directions on how to keep going. You mentioned consciousness in your definition of Kabbalah and understanding it, that high-level overview. Can we talk a little bit more about consciousness and living a conscious life? What does that mean to you? I love talking about consciousness because consciousness is your reality. It's where your thoughts live, and then it's where your actions then follow from. 
it creates intelligence. Consciousness is malleable, it's flexible, and it's always expanding. And consciousness, because it's it's unending, it has no interest in being right. It seeks simply to be, which is a huge idea, and it's unlimited. So we can keep growing and expanding it, which for me is life, really. I mean, it's all about changing your perspective and your perception of how you see things and how you see people and how you see yourself. And the more you expand your consciousness, the more you're able to find peace and lasting fulfillment. My mind is just blown. I'm just like, whoa, expanding our consciousness. So is that really about, like you said, developing perspective? Like I've heard of other people talking about like raising your energy. Do you think it all kind of points at the same kind of idea? Well, the the, the key difference I think here is that in order to really grow your consciousness, you need to work on breaking down your ego. Because when ego is in the picture, then consciousness is limited because ego is going to take the driver's seat. We have two aspects of us, right? There's good and there's evil. Consciousness, which again, an elevated consciousness is what we're talking about, is connected to the soul aspect of you. And the other parts of us that, you know, behave unkindly to people, that gossip, that do, you know, act in cruel ways, that's connected to ego. So whatever you feed grows. And that's, that's really what Kabbalah helps, right? It helps you continually practice feeding the soul aspect of yourself versus the ego. Oh, continuing to feed the soul aspect of you. Can we talk a little bit more about ego and what exactly it is? You pointed it like it's the part of you that would gossip. It's the part of you that isn't that elevated version of ourselves but how does ego show up in our lives and what does an ego-driven life look like? So ego, and I, and I think it confuses a lot of people because ego is like, well, I need to have confidence and I, you know, you know, an aspect of ego. But what I'm talking about here is that it's the part of you that gets offended, that adopts a static perspective. It's the one part of you that doesn't want to change its mind, that doesn't want to be around people that's smarter than you, that doesn't want to be challenged, that wants to know the most on any subject, that leaves no room for growth. And ego wants everything to stay the same, to be predictable, to be comfortable. So it's very limited. And, and usually when the ego, again, the more you feed it, the bigger it gets, the stronger it gets, and then you think you're right. And when you always think you're right, you're going to miss out on all the real truths of the world, all the opportunities, all of the opportunities for true connection. This, it comes up a lot in relationships. I always say to people, you know, you need to get the third party out, which is the ego, because it's usually three people in a relationship. It's you, it's the other person. And then if the ego's right there in the middle, that is like, that leads to all dead ends. What happens if we end up falling into this trap of ego? What, what does that tend to do in a person's life? Does it lead to misery? I think so. I think it limits you in what you can achieve what you can activate, what you can access. And I think it creates very limited kind of thinking and limitation in every area, limited relationships, limited in happiness, because you can be successful, right? A lot of, I mean, honestly, most of the most successful people do have very healthy egos. And again, need an aspect of that, but then you always have to convert it to, okay, how am I going to now give back and share and balance that energy? Because if not, you can go all the way down. And before you know it, you're like, why am I here feeling miserable and happy and lonely? When you have all of the things that status can afford, I guess. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny because my, um, I always give this as an example because it really kind of struck me. Uh, one of my kids out of my four children has special needs and I have a friend that is very successful and he, he, my son is, his name's Josh. And he often thinks that he has messages, you know, cause he has, he kind of lives in a different reality, which again, I think because he's different than most of us in kind of the typical ways, he's extraordinary in other ways that we don't actually have access to. So my friend shares this opinion and he said to him, he said, Josh, do you have a message for me? And my friend's very, very tall. And he said, yeah, he said, you need to make yourself smaller so people can hug you. And we all looked at each other because we knew he wasn't talking about his height. Right. And I think that that just sums it up, right? When you're, when, when your ego, it's kind of like you're so much above everybody else that you miss out on all the great beauties of life. You need to make yourself smaller so others can hug you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cry, Monica. <laughs> what a message, right? To stay in connection with others. Wow, wise little soul that one. Yeah, he is. In terms of quietening our ego or getting getting a grip of it, really, does that help us get to our potential? Because what I'm kind of hearing is if we can get trapped in ego, it will block us from our potential. And you use those words like activate. Is it really that elevation of consciousness and stepping into that soul version of ourselves that helps us really step into our potential in human form? Absolutely. And, and I don't even think it's quieting the ego it's slowly chipping away at the ego because if you look at for instance if a person goes through life acting and again this is all attached to ego like selfishly and without regard for other people's feelings me 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 attitude first and foremost so what happens over time when we do actions that are not our best right and we know what that is if at the end of the day we look in the mirror like look when you yell at that person in the street or you cut them off or you whatever you curse them out it really wasn't my best right so if you, if you do that many, many times a day, then slowly there's like a shell that comes over your soul, right? Shell. So imagine like you have, um, let's say an onion, right? And you start to peel back the layers. That is what you do when you slowly break down the ego. When you chip away at these, these shells or these layers become peeled and then your soul's able to shine again. So then clearly, if that's the process that's happening, you're going to be able to have more clarity. You're going to have intuition. You're going to have more focus and your path is going to be so much clearer in front of you of what you should do instead of relying on a doctor or a therapist or outside people to be the authority over you, you're going to be the authority because now you have all that information that you do have, but you've just covered it up or quieted it so much that you don't have access to it. I'm just feeling like I was destined to speak to you, Monica. It's just like, oh, everything that you say just lands so, so much with me. It's like touching my soul, we could say. Mm. When we look at the world, and obviously we live in America, so when we look at the world and the current state, would you say it's a crisis of consciousness? I think so. I think that it's a scary kind of place that we're in now. I think on one hand, I think more people are curious about spiritual things or about being open to other things because the world seems darker (laughs) than it's been in a while. But I think also we've become a culture that doesn't like any kind of discomfort and we're a culture of distraction and quick fixes. So there's a danger in that too, right? And, And it takes consciousness and thought and will to decide that discomfort is worth it for something greater, that there's no 
quick fix for anything that's really important. And I'd like to go back to that part. I mean, and I think that's the only way to really change the culture that we're in because can't force people. But if, if people really are desiring to connect to what is true and what is important, then we've got to get out of that mentality of, you know, again, quick fixes and, uh, and I want it now. And this like screen addiction. I mean, I think it's all of that. I think all of that is making, you know, I wrote an article recently about ghosting and all these things, like just people just not even showing up for themselves and for others. I think that's part of it. Have we, are we lacking that sense of community now, in your opinion, you know, that connection to others? Connection, that, yes, yeah. I think so. And I think we have a lot of easy reasons and escapes, right? If, you, if we can text instead of call, we can, you know, and there's so many options. There's more options than ever. So if you don't like something, okay, I can just write it off because there's another thing around the corner. I, I think that that is the danger of where we find ourselves in. Because when you were talking earlier about when you move into that consciousness and that elevated consciousness, you're always considering the greater good. And I feel like so many of us have become disconnected from others that it's hard to consider the greater good because we live in such an individualistic society. Exactly. You mentioned also that ego and, well, I got the impression that ego and materialism kind of go hand in hand at some level. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I would, because it's connected to just physicality. I mean, Kabbalistically, we call it the 1% realm versus the 99%. And the 1% is everything that your five senses enjoys, right? It's you, you smell something that you like, you get it. You taste something, you want more of it. It's, you know, you see something, It's and that's the illusion, because we can't just rely on that. You know, I think that a lot of times when people are looking for partners, they just rely on their five senses. And if, you know, you see something and the person has money or they're good looking and it's just based on those things, I mean, that's not necessarily going to last. But if you go into the 99% realm, which is what we can't see in the physical world, right? I mean, even the fact that we're on Skype right now, I mean, I don't know how this is working technically, but I can speak to you while I'm in New York City and you're in a different state, right? So it's that other part that's working all the time that we want to be connected to. But ego is not interested in that. Ego is, I want this now. I want instant gratification. And, and that's, again, that's the 1% realm. I am just mind blowing. So Kabbalah teaches that 99% of what is real cannot be perceived with our five senses. Correct. Whoa, I love right. that. Yes. I just think if you just take that one little view of the world, it automatically opens up, obviously, so much more. Well, then you realize that you really don't know anything. You better be open to start learning. I mean, that's the, that's the funny thing. The more you really learn, the more you realize you know nothing. And that's what I love about this wisdom also. I think that's really funny you say that because I feel like not even looking at Kabbalah or spirituality, but I have felt that about my whole life is that the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. Right. Right. But see, that means that you, that your ego is pushed aside and you're open because ego doesn't, isn't comfortable with that. Ego is, I know, I know, I know. Mm. Yeah. And because I know I'm, is there an element of because I know, therefore I think I'm superior as well? If it, yeah, if somebody has a really healthy ego <laughs> or I'm better than you or yeah, absolutely. In Kabbalah, is there this belief that the consciousness of an individual, say you and I, does our consciousness level affect the consciousness of the whole, say humanity? Absolutely. I, I always tell my kids, you know, 
it's not you that I that I don't necessarily trust. I think we're all influenced by our environment to even greater degrees than we realize. And and that could be for both positive and for negative. You know, I mean, I just think that if, and that's why I'm really selective about who I actually spend time with, because if somebody's gossiping all the time, first of all, I don't want to hear it. And, um, and I know that I'm participating because even if the person is the one speaking, if I'm not standing there for them to tell it to, then it's not going to be uttered in that moment. Right. So I think that we do have a real influence on one another. You know, there's group think and people not wanting to stand up against others and we're afraid of rejection and we don't want to be ostracized. I mean, there's so much. So yeah, the consciousness of a person is affected by the, the, those that they're around, but also we have the ability to affect others. That makes so much sense to me. Coming kind of full circle to where we started with that, you mentioned uh, that you take good care of yourself to be able to do all the things that you do and manage all of these multiple priorities that you know that the relationship with you is paramount and needs to be taken care of. How do you do that? How do you take care of that connection with yourself or, and perhaps even that, that spiritual connection? Do you have certain practices or? I do. When I wake up in the morning, I say uh, prayers that, you know, thinking, the creator that I was given the gift of another day, that my body's working, that I opened my eyes, that I was able to take a breath. I mean, not to take anything for granted at all, because I think that's pretty miraculous that we go to sleep every night and we wake up again. And, um, and I have, you know, a gratitude journal and really just to, to live in today, to live in the now, to live with appreciation. I also give myself a lot of emotional feedback. So throughout the day, I check in with myself if I'm doing what I think I meant to do in that day, if there's something I could do better or different. I'm constantly giving myself that and I do take it very seriously. I also work out every day. I think it's very important to give yourself that as well physically. So I think it's just living with purpose, consciousness, gratitude and appreciation. Can we talk more about that emotional feedback? Is that kind of like a, a sense of self-awareness? You mentioned kind of checking in with yourself. How, how did you go about that? Because I feel like for so many people listening, they're just scurrying throughout their days. And that, that idea of kind of stepping back and evaluating where you're at is kind of foreign. So how do you go about or how did you begin that journey of emotional feedback? And I love that question because it is a practice and it takes time to cultivate it. But once you do, it's absolutely, it's like, it's in essence becoming your own best friend and it starts with intuition. And then the question would be, well, how do you get there? Because most people can't even tap into that. So I had mentioned earlier that I had anorexia. And at that time I was really a people pleaser. I mean, I was so different than the person I am today in terms of what I thought I deserved in terms of having a voice removing shame and guilt and being able to say, I want this and it's okay to ask for it. There's no shame in wanting. So there was a, a lot of, a lot of changes that occurred in that area. And then I started to take myself seriously. Now by, by taking myself seriously, I don't mean being self-centered. I mean, being self-interested. So if I would feel something, I would pause and say, okay, well, what is that feeling about? Or if I was having a good day and then suddenly I started to become sad, I would go back and say, okay, what happened five minutes ago? And if that wasn't enough time, then 30 minutes ago or an hour ago, what, what happened? And then I'd access, oh, when that person said this and that, it made me feel this way. Then I would say, okay, well, what 
do I think about that? Do I believe it to be true? Or, you know, why am I giving that person so much power over my day or my beliefs? Do I believe it? Right. So it's really kind of caring enough about yourself, really self-care that you stop and, and you, and you listen to yourself. And then the more you practice that, it just becomes, it's basically hearing your soul's desires. And and that's pretty awesome. (laughs) Right. Because I do feel, I always sort of say our soul is always talking to us, but it speaks in whispers and the outside world is noisy and it shouts at us. So you have to take the time to tune in, to hear the whispers. Right. And most people ignore it. And when you ignore it enough, then you don't even have access to it. You don't even hear the whisper. And that's why a lot of people are kind of going through life, not having intuition, not having clarity and really relying on other people to tell them what to do. So we need to take that power back. Mm, and that's a practice. And I'm, I'm assuming it's a muscle that's just got stronger with time for you. Absolutely. You met your husband when, how old were you? You must've been pretty young. I'm gathering if you've been together 22 years, Monica. I was, I was, well, I met him when I was 17, when I actually had anorexia and then we fell in love when I was 23. Do you know, I was, I was snooping on you because that's appropriate when I am actually researching an interview, right? I'm allowed to snoop. And I I, don't think you're a stalker. I'm an appropriate (laughs) stalker. I had good reason to stalk you, but I came across that post where you mentioned that you had you'd known each other before you'd been in passing right you'd been around each other but it wasn't until your hands touched that there was the spark of and I want to say recognition but it's not the word you use there was the spark and it was love and you were mm-hmm. married nine months later can we talk a little bit about that because I just think it's such a beautiful story who doesn't want to hear a story like that no absolutely I think that it's all about timing really I mean we had known each other and um we come from very different worlds. He was born in Israel and he was raised in a religious home. I was born in Thibodeau, Louisiana. I lived in New Orleans. I was not raised in a religious home and we just had very different upbringings. So on paper, it would look like we absolutely didn't match. And when we first met, it was awkward because, um, he just was studying all the time. I mean, he had his nose in a book and I write about this in my relationship book that's coming out, but he, you know, while he was walking and reading, I mean, literally would walk with books in his hand. I was, you know, dancing and driving. I mean, just completely different, but there was something even, you know, he's a year older than I am that we appreciated something about one another. I thought he was very disciplined, so different than I was in kind of amazing ways in terms of his, his, um, dedication to study and his passion and really knowing what he wanted. And, uh, I think he saw my potential of what I could be when I couldn't see it for myself at that time. So, and again, I, this is all in hindsight, I understood it, but even in that moment, I recognized something. I just didn't understand what it was, but no feelings at all. I mean, I write down in my book that, you know, even if God had come down and saying, this is who you're going to marry, I would have said, absolutely not. This is absolutely not the one. Um, because it just was not, we were just not ready. And then in those years, I went through the most difficult time of my life. And that's, again, when I went through this transformation of really learning to love myself because I was so lonely. I mean, an eating disorder is a really lonely, dark place to be. It's very isolating. And I just wanted to be loved. I craved loved more than ever. I wanted a relationship. And I, and I realized though, that I need to give that to myself. What I want and what I'm looking for externally can never come unless I first practice that. So I think that in those years, we both merited to find each other. So when five years later, I walked into his office as we were working on a project 
that somebody, by the way, like begged me to help on. And I was like trying to exercise my voice and say, and have my boundaries up for the first time. I kept saying no. By the fourth time, I finally said, okay, I'll do it. And it was in that meeting that our hands touched. And yeah, it was like Xanadu, like sparks flew for both of us. I mean, we didn't know what happened. We were both just as shocked and we were married nine months later. Oh, I just, that story just, it brings tingles to me. And, um, I guess I see some of my own life in there and that my husband and I, we didn't match on paper either. And yet I just knew, I just knew the moment I met him. So in terms of that, and I'm interested in the lens of Kabbalah as well, is there the soul connection that we perhaps bring into the world with others that we recognize or does Kabbalah not necessarily say that? Kabbalah believes in reincarnation and past lives. And I think that that's kind of explains when, you know, you have deja vu or you meet somebody, you feel like you've known them before. I think your soul's recognizing something again, that we don't have access to. And yeah, so there are soul connections. I think it's about preparing for meriting those kinds of relationships. I think it's about timing. I think it's about purpose. You know, if you have something to do together and, uh, and there are many types of, I mean, people call them soulmates, but there's many types of soul relationships like that. Mm. Can we touch a little bit on what your new book, which is coming out this month, is going to be called? It's Rethink Love, right? Yes, it's Rethink Love. It's three steps for going from me to we. From me to we. Can we talk a little bit about that? Are you talking about love in terms of our relationships with those that matter most to us or love more generally? Well, it's everything. I mean, this book is big. It's three parts. And I wrote it over a seven year period. In fact, my second book, which was published first, Fear is Not an Option, took me nine months to write. And um, this relationship book, I was at the time, and I still do meet with a lot of couples. And I kept finding themes that of issues. And again, a lot of it was related to ego. A lot of it was that there wasn't a kind of a spirituality in it, because if you don't have that, then where does the aspect of sharing come in? Right. So I started to see these themes and I said, okay, I need to start writing about this. And then it evolved into this book. So the first part is about me, right? It's the relationship you have with yourself. It's the most important relationship you'll ever have. And it's the one step that most people miss usually before they enter a relationship. And I state that it's never too late to go back to this. It's so important to cultivate it at any age. I mean, I see people in their seventies who maybe their partner is sick or has passed or they're divorced and they're still like, who am I? You know, how did I end up here? Why did I make these choices? So that step is so important and it, and it really needs to be addressed. So I give very specific tools of how to remove shame, guilt, um, how to tap into intuition, how to know who you are, what you think, how to direct your desire. So that's all in the first part. The second part is going from me to we. It's how to keep yourself when you enter a relationship, how to be able to join and create a life with somebody else while not losing yourself in it, which happens so often. And then the third is we, and that's how to navigate successfully through a relationship. It's how to fight, right? I think that's very important. I get worried when couples don't fight. So there's a chapter called spiritual sparring to find your fighting style. It's how to learn to communicate, how to be emotionally intelligent, how to be uh, friends, you know, because that's another step that I think often people don't, they fall in love, but then they go to their girlfriends or the guys, they hang out and that's where they really share their grievances or their desires or hopes. And then somehow the marriage becomes a partnership or, you know, 
you have children together, start a life together, but then the relationship doesn't really evolve. Oh. So that part's about like elevating the love really. And making it we. Oh, this book sounds phenomenal. I cannot wait. I, should, I can't either. I'm like, oh, November, come up. We're recording this before November. So now I'm like, I've got a couple of months to wait before I can read it. Uh, I ask everyone, Monica, some intermission questions and it's your turn now. Are you ready? Yes. Do you consider yourself a morning person or a night person? Morning. <laughs> and, how, and how does that look for you? Um, well, unfortunately, often we have late nights and that's when it's painful, but I'm definitely a morning person. I get up an hour before everybody else because while I'm a morning person, I'm not a morning person. I do not want to speak for like the first hour. So that's when I do my meditations. I have a cup of coffee. I prepare my schedule for the day, the kids' lunches, and then I go work out for two hours and then, and then I start the rest of it. You mentioned that you have a range of ages with your children. You've got four. What are their range in ages? 20, 17, 16, and six. Oh my gosh, you have a baby. (laughs) What is on your bedside table at the moment, Monica? Can you remember? Yes, uh, lavender oil. I love, it's like a spray I put on my bed. The Zohar, which is the main uh, Kabbalistic text where all the wisdom comes from. I have a candle and I have the book, A Short Guide to a Long Life. Oh, A Short Guide to a Long Life. Do you know who wrote it? It's really good. It's Dr. Agus. It's, it's amazing. I was going to say, it sounds really interesting. I like All it. All of his books are phenomenal. Yeah, I recommend it. Do you have a favorite self-care activity, Monica? I would say it's my workout. I do the Tracy Anderson method. It's really just, I'm the kind of person that I feel like I am most in a meditative state when my body's really moving very quickly. So that kind of just balances me. And I also like, I use the infrared sauna a lot. It's very healthy and the properties, the healing properties are amazing. I need to look into an infrared sauna. I had a breast cancer last year and that came up as like something that was really healing and I haven't really looked into it yet. It's amazing. I mean, especially if I get off of an airplane, it detoxes you completely from heavy metals, from radiation. Um, It's great for the bones, for the skin, for the organs. I mean, on a cellular level, it really, really is all encompassing. I I highly recommend it. Totally need to check it out. Do you have a book that has touched you at an important point in your life? I feel like so often, you know, that we just have the right book at the right time. Have you ever had a book like that? Well, it's interesting. I think that all points of life are important. And so I, and I pay attention, you know, I think everything is a message, but one book that I often go back to and reread, it's really short, but I just think it just hits so perfectly on so many issues. It's This is Water by David Foster Wallace. And it's interesting. He ended up committing suicide actually. And this was the commencement speech that they created into a book. And, uh, he just, he was tapped into something like a, a, a universal truth. Mm. Do you think that often uh, those, I wouldn't say often, do, do, have you seen it in your work and your experience over life that often those who are tapped into something bigger find this world tough? I do if they've tapped into something and they haven't been able to get the answers oh, to make sense, sense of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. to make sense of it. What's a life lesson that took you a long while to learn, Monica? Well, that's a good question, and I love that one. There's two, really. I think that one is that, you know, when people are judging you, 
it's uh, it's not really about you. It's more about them and has everything to do with themselves. And you just happen to be in their proximity. That took me a really long time to learn because I took everything personally. And I thought, oh, you know, what did I do? And, and then I was like, no, you know what? Just remove yourself from the situation. And when I learned to do that, eventually the person would come around or not. But I was clear about what was going on. And there's always, of course, messages and feedback. And I'm open to that. But very often, you know, people put their stuff at you because it's easier for them. And I think the other really big one that I learned is that because I'm a Virgo and I was like a perfectionist and that's really the most boring word ever. And I've really worked very hard not to become one. So we're all familiar with the old adage, anything worth doing is worth doing well. I actually disagree. I think everything worth doing is worth doing badly. And because to you know you're going to become good at things of course through failing and the practice of it and when we have this expectation that we're meant to do it amazingly and that if you put great effort in it you know eventually you will become successful at it but i think people leave out that process aspect of great effort so i think that again no one's perfect and if you're doing it the first time you're not going to be good at it but everything worth doing is worth doing badly do it imperfectly. I love it. Mm. What is one thing in your day you can't do without? Huh. <laughs> hmm. uh, um, I guess love. Oh, we'll leave that one right there. That's perfect. How would you describe the soul, Monica? It's that aspect of you that is unending and that is connected to where you come from and where you end up. And the final one from the intermission, what does fulfillment mean to you? It means living a life of purpose and it means being able to see the gift in even the most difficult situations and know that they're a gift that are custom made for you. They might be in a, an ugly package that you want to send back, but if you take the time to unfold it, there's something amazing there for you. And when you find it, you really do feel truly fulfilled. Does, do you see life as full of lessons? Like you just said that gift, like whatever is, coming up in your life no matter how rough it looks on the surface that there is a gift in there for you is that about becoming ourselves becoming becoming our potential I don't, I don't know if I have the right language uh, absolutely that's how I live my life I don't believe in suffering and I believe in fulfillment I believe in happiness I believe in growth and so if you live your life like that and you don't believe in suffering, it means that, okay, with things that happen in life that are difficult, that are painful, that are challenging, there has to be some beauty in there and it's our responsibility to find it. And when you do, you say, wow, and then you become a different person and that new version of you is happier, is more fulfilled. And you look back and say, oh, wow, I've grown so much. I feel so proud. It's that process that's so important that is part of why we're here and you know, if not, then we can live a victim consciousness. And that's just not something that I ever want to do. So in our struggle, potentially lies our potential. Love it. Just wrapping up today, Monica, this has been so much fun. And I feel like I'm going to have to re-listen multiple times to soak up all of the wisdom so far. I have one more question for you. If you were to leave the listeners of Here to Thrive with one thought today, what would that be? This is your life and you alone are responsible for the quality of it. 
So if you don't love what you're doing, then don't do it. And if you love what you're doing, do more of it. And if you don't know what you love, it's time to find out. Wow. Honestly, so much wisdom in there and you can tell how much I think it aligns with what I believe and how I see the world. I've since signed up after talking to Monica, which was a couple of months before we released this episode. I have joined the Kabbalah Center and have loved some of the courses. Monica's new book, Rethink Love, will be out very shortly. I encourage you to check her website, rethinklife.today, or search Monica Berg and keep an eye on that. She's also on Instagram at monicaberg74. Her other book, Fear Is Not An Option, is available on Amazon, and I will share that in the show notes as well. If you've got a spare moment and you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in iTunes. That is what helps new listeners find the podcast. It helps iTunes recognize that we might be a podcast worth listening to. So your positive reviews really help out so much and it means the world to me. I read every single one. I hope this conversation gave you something to consider, something to ponder, something to help you look through a slightly different lens at the world. And until we continue this conversation week after next, I just want you to keep thriving, beautiful people. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.